millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I want to start this week by thanking everyone who wrote to me last week, wishing me luck on my wedding day. For those of you who are interested, the sun shone, the bride was blushing, the minister was obliging, and much merriment, not to mention wine, was had by all. I now have a fancy ring on my finger as I speak this to you, and I'm raring to get back to the business of podcasting after an amazing, if exhausting, week. Naturally, I also need to thank my most recent monthly donators, Tony, Alexandra, and Bianca. We are creeping ever closer to $200 per month, which would mean I'd have to start making more episodes for you. I reckon it won't be too long before we get there. If you would like to become one of my patrons and join these wonderful people in their generosity, then head over to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast, where you can find all the information you need. You can give as little as $1 per month, and trust me, it makes all the difference. You can get all the latest updates from the show on my Facebook page, Queens of England podcast, and there is also my Twitter page, at Queen's Podcast. And you can also ask me questions or send praise and or vitriol my way by email. The address is queensofenglandpodcast at gmail.com. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England Podcast. Episode 46, Jane Seymour, The Pacific Peacemaker. Last time, we followed Jane Seymour through her early life and rise to the throne, culminating in her marriage to Henry VIII in 1536. Today, we will look at her reign itself. Much has been made about the great swing difference in the personalities and type of queenship embodied by Jane Seymour and her immediate predecessor on the throne, Anne Boleyn. And while they were two different queens, there are some similarities, as I spoke about last week. There is the backgrounds, which were relatively similar. They followed a similar path to the throne, and used much the same tactics in order to avoid falling into the mistress zone, and instead win the crown. I focused a lot on these similarities in the last episode, but this time it'll be slightly different, as Jane did cut a very different figure while on the throne than Anne. In her, spoiler alert, short reign as queen, Jane left really two lasting legacies, and they are biggies. The first of these was to help in the reconciliation between Henry and his daughter Mary, and, to a very real extent, Mary to Henry, because it was a two-way street, albeit with far more lanes on the father's side. Any Venn diagram of Jane and Mary's supporters would show a fair degree of intersection. 
This was, though, really an alliance of convenience, as they represented a change from the Berlin-dominated Reformer Party and offered a very real and very possible prospect of bringing England back to the kingdom it had been in 1529. That said, there does seem to have been some affection between the new queen and the princess. Eustace Chapuis, even while making snide digs at her, does mention that a redeeming feature of Jane was that she was nice to Mary, and pretty much immediately after becoming queen, Jane made an attempt at reconciling king and daughter. In a letter to Charles V, Chapuis wrote, quote, The joy shown by this people every day, not only at the ruin of the concubine, but at the hope of the princess's restoration, is inconceivable. But as yet the king shows no great disposition towards the latter. Indeed, he has twice shown himself obstinate when spoken to on the subject by his council. I hear that, even before the arrest of the concubine, the king, speaking with the mistress Jane Seymour of their future marriage, the latter suggested that the princess should be replaced in her former position. And the king told her she was a fool, and ought to solicit the advancement of the children they would have between them, and not any others. This would become a bit of a feature of Jane's reign, Henry slapping down his new wife whenever she tried to express a view, even in traditional queenly areas of interest. She didn't give up, though, as Chapuis continues, quote, She replies that in asking for the restoration of the princess, she conceived that she was seeking the rest and tranquility of the king, herself, her future children, and the whole realm, for, without that, neither your majesty nor this people would ever be content. We can see here that right from the start, Henry was putting tremendous pressure on Jane to produce sons. There would be no grace period here. She was married for a singular purpose, and yet, as we shall see, Jane was no doormat. Princess Mary had inherited much of her mother's popularity at this time. Of course, now, Mary's reputation has been tarnished by some of the more lurid accounts of religious repression during her reign as queen, but that is still decades in the future for people at the time. For the moment, she was a very popular figure, and in lying with her, Jane was making a very astute move. Thanks to the disgrace of their respective mothers, Mary and Elizabeth were both excluded from the succession by Act of Parliament on the 8th of June 1536. Indeed, of course, Mary had been excluded before that, even then, as part of the settlement that made Anne Boleyn queen. This was all done to ensure that the children that Jane would produce as queen would have no legitimate rivals when Henry died and it came to the succession. This was sound political sense for Henry and Cromwell, as it completed the coup against Anne and cemented Jane's position as queen. Any son that they produced would of course have jumped ahead of them in the succession anyway. This was really just adding an extra layer of protection. Henry, though, was not completely closed off to the idea of legitimising Mary. Chapuis reports that Henry said the following to him during the reign of Queen Anne. Quote, As for the legitimation of our daughter Mary... If she would submit to our grace without wrestling against the determination of our laws, we would acknowledge her and use her as our daughter, but we would not be directed or pressed therein. That was Henry's position. Until Mary accepted his religious policies and fell into line, then she was out. It was, in fact, the same position that Henry had held for a decade over the position of both Mary and her mother Catherine. Mary, of course, held a different view. Her position was that Henry had been made to look a spectacular fool in his pursuit of Anne. In her disgrace, Anne had humiliated him by having it off with half the court, including one of his best friends. 
Mary thought that she only had to wait a little before Henry came cap in hand, begging for forgiveness and admitting that she had been right all along. Like father, like daughter, really, they were as stubborn as each other. Around this time, Mary had a conversation with Cromwell on this very topic, who basically told her that Henry was implacable on his religious policies and was not going to come back on his knees. So, she wrote to her father a letter in June 1536, meeting him, well, not halfway exactly, more a third of the way. She starts the letter by grovelling a bit, apologising for any slights and freely admits to having offended him. So far, so good. But she does not give way on the crucial issue, that of religious reform. Henry was not having that, and saw an opportunity to defeat his daughter right then and there. Against Cromwell's advice, because he had no wish to see the king's first daughter executed for treason, a letter of confession and submission was drawn up for Mary to sign. Henry then placed her under tremendous pressure to sign it, and finally capitulate to his wishes. She, of course, did not, and so things were very close to getting out of hand. Mary would be a far more dangerous person for Henry to harm than Anne had been, as Mary had powerful foreign friends. What he had done to Catherine was one thing, but executing the cousin of the emperor would be a very, very dangerous thing to do. Yet, Mary's position was very weak. She had few friends left at court, and while she did have foreign friends abroad, none of them were really willing to fight a war for her against Henry. This is where Jane stepped in to try to cool things down. Now, her role in this can be a little overstated. Some books paint her as the archetypical peacemaker here, mending the bond between father and daughter. I don't think that's quite right. What I think is closer to the truth is that Jane intervened in order to offer Mary a way out. She wrote to the princess, essentially saying that for her own safety she had to acquiesce, and had comfort that the duress she was under would absolve her conscience. Sadly, we don't have that letter, but we do have Mary's reply, which is how we can deduce its contents. Mary's reply is very kind, very much unlike anything she had ever said to Anne Boleyn. She thanked Jane for her prudent counsel, and a few days later she took her advice and signed Cromwell's letter of submission. It was a bitter pill to swallow, as it basically meant her agreement to every accusation thrown at her mother throughout the annulment procedure. I've put a copy of the letter in the show notes if you would like to read it. The important thing for our story, though, is that, while we cannot know for sure how much of an effect Jane's intervention had, it does seem to have been quite crucial in essentially giving Mary a way to say yes while still keeping some dignity. Some have questioned Jane's motives here, but I think it is hard to see how sticking up for Mary was necessarily in her own self-interest in a narrow sense. Henry's relationship with his family was, well, tempestuous is to put it mildly, and so I think the prudent thing for Jane to have done would have been to stay well clear of it, but she didn't, even after she was safe as queen. And so I think it does speak to something innate in her personality, a desire for everyone to just please just get along. Jane and Mary did seem to get on well, and I think this does go slightly beyond a political alliance that existed purely for expedient. While Mary had allies, they weren't in tremendously high places for the most part, and since she was no fool, she knew that she was being used by many people to further their own political goals. Jane was a little different in that she didn't really have any particular political goals. We'll get into her political influence a little bit later, 
but really she wanted to be a fairly normal queen when it came to political engagement. She didn't retreat completely, but she was not really ambitious. To put it another way, she was most definitely no Anne Boleyn once on the throne, and so Mary could be fairly sure that she was being genuine in her friendship. Mary's stock will continue to recover throughout Jane's reign. There were attempts to get her an advantageous foreign marriage, and she was, once again, treated like a princess, and acknowledged as such, if a bastard. Indeed, when Jane died, Mary was the chief mourner at the funeral, and in between Jane's death and Henry's marriage to wife number four, she essentially stepped into Jane's shoes, performing a lot of the ceremonial acts expected of a queen, as well as organising the court. It was a tremendous turnaround, and a lot of it had to do with the influence of Jane Seymour. Now, this episode is not about Mary Tudor, so I won't go on too much more about her reconciliation, but it was a truly remarkable one, and it does show that Henry could be remarkably benevolent if people just did exactly what he told them to do. Jane's relationship with Elizabeth is less known, largely because she was still an infant while Mary was an adult, but Henry did start to show more love towards his second daughter in this time, though he did not legitimise her, and it seems that Jane didn't push him on that. So far then, we have seen that Jane could have an influence on the king on some matters, but he seemed to have far less tolerance for wifely intervention than he had during the reigns of Catherine and Anne. Catherine, thanks to her family connections and experience, had been a good example of how a queen could use the traditional powers of her office to have a good deal of influence, especially if they were from a powerful foreign ally. Anne had been a little bit more unusual and used less traditionally feminine means to influence her husband, ways commonly used by the men of the court. This had been effective, but also highly resented and contributed to her unpopularity. Jane did not really hanker after power, but she was not a doormat either, and as I've already said, she wanted to be rather like Catherine of Aragon, a queen who used traditional means to have an influence on Henry. The problem was that things were very different for her. For a start, their social positions were poles apart. Catherine had been the daughter of a foreign powerful ally, and came to the throne with a similar experience at court and rulership as her husband at the beginning of his reign, not to mention the fact that she was older than him. Jane was the daughter of a middling country nobleman that no one had heard of until recently. She had no foreign connections at all, and was far younger and more inexperienced than Henry. Therefore, he had very little respect for her when she tried to dip her toes into the political sphere, and this is laid bare famously during the Pilgrimage of Grace. In brief, despite its rather elegant-sounding name, the Pilgrimage of Grace was actually a very dangerous peasant uprising led by religious conservatives opposed to Henry and Cromwell's pillaging of religious houses and the break with Rome. Its leaders in Yorkshire amassed a huge army of around thirty to 40,000 and essentially took control of the county. This was not the only uprising around at the time, and though Henry initially dismissed it, it quickly became clear that he was in serious danger, and he sent the Duke of Norfolk up there to broker a deal. In many ways, this has more than a whiff of the peasants' revolt about it, because Henry quickly went back on his promises on flimsy excuses, and after having made peace with the rebels, had all of their leaders arrested for treason. Now, to this point, Jane, despite her having a reputation as a religious conservative, had not attempted to change her husband's course on the Reformation. As I've already said, I don't believe that she and her brother Edward were really religious conservatives. She had just been a useful vehicle for them during Anne's fall, and had taken full advantage. However, on this point, 
she decided that she would try to intervene on behalf of the rebels during the early part of the rebellion. Intercession with their husband to beg for mercy to be shown is classic queening. We've seen it so many times before. Oftentimes, it was... A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Coordinated with the king and his advisors in a showpiece occasion so that the king could display his mercy to as many people as possible while still maintaining the air of a powerful, indomitable figure. Jane, however, failed to coordinate her intercession in advance, and since she had yet to conceive a child with Henry, her stock was not especially high. This is, for once, not from Chapuis, but from a Frenchman at court. Quote, At the beginning of the insurrection, the queen threw herself on her knees before the king and begged him to restore the abbeys, but he told her, prudently enough, to get up, and he had often told her not to meddle with his affairs, referring to the late queen, which was enough to frighten a woman who is not very secure. This was a pretty serious slapdown, and he does essentially threaten her with death. Now, there are some pretty major caveats. First, Henry had a legendary temper, and so it's unlikely that he made this threat with any real intention of going through with it. It was really just to make a point. And secondly, it is possible that the account is exaggerated, as there are doubts about how the Frenchman would have gotten this information. That said, what this event does show us is that Henry, for now at least, had no need for a partner in political affairs, especially in times as potentially perilous as during times of rebellion. He had advisers, and above all, he had Cromwell. What he wanted from Jane was a son, and she hadn't given him that yet. Maybe after that, and then even the birth of a spare, then she could have an influence. So, if she didn't have a huge political influence, then what did she do in her relatively short reign? Well, she was known to be a good imperialist, i.e. favour the cause of Charles V over Francis, but as I've said, her lack of real influence to bring anything about made this all rather moot. She wasn't sidelined over everything, though, and her imperialist leanings were a factor. In July 1537, our old friend Chapuis was recalled after an eventful term as imperial ambassador, to say the least, and was replaced by one Diego de Mendoza, who was sent for one express purpose, to arrange the marriage of Princess Mary to the heir to the throne of Portugal. I won't get into the reasons for this, but as usual, it had a lot to do with screwing the French. Mendoza was instructed to present it both to Henry and to Jane, as her imperialist leanings 
were thought useful in persuading Henry to favour this marriage. In the end, it all came to naught, but it does show that at the time, Jane was seen as someone who could influence Henry, even if there is not as much evidence in her case as there is for Catherine and Anne. Her tastes at court were noticeably less ostentatious, foreign and rich than Anne Boleyn's had been, and in some accounts people have been keen to play up this plain Jane image by imagining her as being dull, dur, and running a court that was a complete Yawnsville. This isn't the case, really. She accompanied her husband to jousts, participated in numerous pageants, and was a lover of music. She was an accomplished horsewoman, and was fond of the hunt, accompanying her husband on many occasions. The hangover from the reign of Anne Boleyn was a long one, and pretty much any court that followed hers would have seen somewhat less fancy in comparison. The problem, really, when it comes to assessing Jane's queenship, is that her reign was so short, and she spent such a significant proportion of it pregnant, that there really wasn't much time to do an awful lot. She didn't even receive a coronation. I actually had a question about this from listener Vanessa on Facebook, asking why none of Henry's queens after Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn received coronations. Well, for fear of spoilers, I won't answer your question in full here, as the circumstances are a little different for everyone, but I will deal here with why Jane didn't get one. The short answer is lack of time, but I will give you a longer answer. Catherine and Anne had both been crowned very quickly after being married, but with Jane there was a gap. Now the circumstances of those two were different. Catherine was crowned early because Henry wanted them to be crowned together. It would solidify his succession as king, and the marriage to a fancy foreign princess was something to be celebrated. Anne's coronation was rushed through because she was pregnant and not far from popping, and there was a desire to make sure that her offspring would be as legitimate as possible, given the dodginess of Anne's position as queen. Now, the initial plan was for Jane to be crowned in early November 1536. She was not pregnant, so there was no need for a quick coronation, and let's not forget that Anne had literally just had her head cut off. These initial plans, though, had to be delayed because of the uprising in the north. Some at the time suggested that she would not be crowned until she had, in the words of her biographer David Lodes, quote, proved her worth by becoming a mother, and this is a possibility, though this seems a little unlikely to me, as in the case of Anne, her coronation was rushed because she was pregnant, yet when Jane became pregnant, she still wasn't crowned. To me, the explanation seems to be purely about timing. First, there was the delay because of the pilgrimage of grace, and then they wanted to wait till the summer, and then decided to wait until a parliament was convened, and so everything would be set and all the important people would be in the same place at the same time. Henry also was not as worried about the legitimacy problem with Jane as he had been with Anne. Plus, have you ever tried holding a big public event, much of it outdoors, in England during the winter? Trust me, it's a terrible idea. Jane would never get a coronation, though had she lived longer, she would definitely have got one, as she was about to give Henry everything that he had ever wanted. As I've said a few times, there was initial concern about Jane's stubborn lack of being with child in the early part of her reign. Both Catherine and Anne had become pregnant either before or very soon after marrying the king, and so it was expected that Jane would be no different. Instead, months went by with no sign of a bump. And then, in early March 1537, about nine months after their marriage, Henry announced that his wife was finally pregnant. There was jubilation at court and around the kingdom. According to the Duke of Norfolk, the news was, quote, "...as much rejoice as anything that I ever saw." 
Reading some of the correspondence at the time, it seems that everyone was talking about it, desperately wishing for this time. Finally, it would be the safe delivery of a healthy son. We can see an example of this in amongst the letter between two nobles largely concerned with fairly parochial matters and answering a fairly mundane set of questions. The writer expresses his fervent wish that Jane bear a son, and then quickly moves on to other matters. Quote, The Queen asked heartily after my lord and your ladyship, but these birds should not be sent alive, for they wax lean and take hurt by the way. Moreover, many come from Lincolnshire. It is said that the Queen is with child. Jesus sent her a prince. I cannot find where your woman or cushion is. Everywhere, in towns and castles across the land, there were parties and celebrations, and other than a rather nervy moment when London was hit by the plague, everything seemed to be going well. Throughout the summer, the court's astrologers, who were taken very seriously at the time, were shockingly unanimous in predicting a son. Jane went into confinement in the autumn and into labour on the 9th of October, but it was a long and difficult birth. By the 11th, there was still no sign of a child and everyone in London was encouraged slash ordered to pray for the Queen and her child. After two days and three nights of agony for everyone, not the least the Queen herself, a child was finally born. Here is the jubilant announcement sent around the kingdom. Quote, by the provision of God, Our Lady St. Mary and the glorious martyr St. George, on the 12th day of October, the Feast of St. Wilfred, the Vigil of St. Edward, which was on the Friday, about two o'clock in the morning, was born at Hampton Court, Edward, son to King Henry VIII. He was normal, alive, and most importantly, healthy. As you might expect, the reaction was rapturous. Henry was at Isha Palace at the time and rushed as soon as he heard the news to Hampton Court. He sent out heralds throughout the kingdom to proclaim the royal birth, and Te Deum was sung in every parish church in London. Every church bell in the kingdom rang in celebration. There were parties in the streets, bonfires through the night, and the tower fired off so many guns in celebration you'd be forgiven for thinking it was under attack. Edward was christened three days later at midnight at Hampton Court, in front of a modest crowd, for the plague was still about and Henry didn't want to take any risks. Jane was still bedridden and so did not attend, but she did entertain guests from her bedchamber and found the time to send off many letters and no doubt read or have read to her the mountain of messages of congratulations pouring in. She would have spent some time with her son, but not an awful lot, as he would have been nursed and taken care of by an army of nurses and other attendants in a different part of the palace. But sadly, the happiness in the palace would not last long. Three days after the christening, Jane caught diarrhoea, a very serious condition at the time, as it still is today in the developing world. From there, she went on to contract puerperal fever, a dangerous infection that affects mothers shortly after childbirth. Even today, it is responsible for about 10% of all deaths in childbirth, and at the time, it was pretty lethal. The cause of it in this case was simple. Her attendants did not take enough attention to her hygiene and in keeping the wounds inflicted during childbirth clean and closed. Of course, at the time, such things were not well understood, but it's very likely that today Jane would have been just fine. As it was, she was very far from fine. After a few days, she became delirious and was administered the last rites. On the 25th of October, 1537, she died, just under a fortnight after giving birth to Henry's long-desired son and heir. Reports were not initially believed, 
Everyone was still on a high from the birth of Edward, and it seemed that Jane could do no wrong, that she was so favoured from God that she couldn't possibly die. When the news did finally sink in, there was widespread mourning, and messengers who had only just been spreading the good news of Edward's birth were now sent back out to inform the people of the death of the Queen. Her body lay in Hampton Court, while a burial place was argued over. Her death had come so unexpectedly that no plans had been made, and it was three full days before Henry made his decision. She would be buried at Windsor. If you think back over our recent queens, there aren't many who died in what is known as good estate, i.e. favoured by the current regime. Excepting Henry's mother Elizabeth of York, there was Anne Neville, but of course even then her husband Richard III was hardly a popular king amongst all his subjects. Before then? Well, I would argue you have to go back to well before the War to the Roses before you find others. Jane's death was mourned so greatly because it was seen as being so unfair, an inexplicable fate for a woman who had given birth to the so long-awaited child. Her funeral was modelled on that of Elizabeth of York, but every ante was upped to give it more splendour, make it fitting of so important a queen. Henry did not take much part in the plans of the event, and, as was traditional, he did not attend the service itself. It was said that, quote, Of none of the realm was it more heavily taken than of the king's majesty himself, whose death caused the king immediately to remove into Westminster, where he mourned and kept himself close and secret a great while. Jane was laid to rest on the 12th of November, and was laid in a vault in the Garter Chapel. Ten years later, Henry would, at his request, be buried next to her, favouring her over his three other wives who had predeceased him. She was the only one of Henry's wives to die universally popular. In this way, and only in this way, she is like James Dean and Kurt Cobain. She died at the peak of her popularity and fame. Unlike any of Henry's other wives, no one at court or internationally counted her as an enemy. Jane Seymour came from almost nowhere, and her reign lasted only 15 months, and so inevitably discussion of her reign was dominated by but one topic, the seismic occasion of the birth of a son and heir, a boy who had indeed succeed his father ten years later. This is best shown by Jane's epitaph, which reads, Here lies Jane, a phoenix who died in giving another phoenix birth. Let her be mourned, for birds like these are rare indeed. While her reign as queen, as we have seen in these two short episodes on her life, was more than just that, in historical terms that was the only great thing of note that she did achieve. Yes, she did play a part in the reconciliation of Mary with her father, and one could argue that she did manage to wean the English court off the excesses of the queenship of Anne Boleyn, but really her reign was too short and her power too limited for her to have a great impact. There is no doubt in my mind that had she lived, then Henry would have only had three wives. The birth of Edward and the fact that he survived would have completely secured Jane in her position as queen. She would have been untouchable and no doubt would have gone on to be an influential queen. Henry was quite willing to listen to his wives if they were subservient and gained his trust, and Jane was both those things. She came with no dowry or important connections and reigned for a blink of an eye, but thanks to her bearing England's first Protestant king, not to mention the later rise to power of her brothers, there is an argument to be had that she was the most important queen that Henry ever had, though I think supporters of Anne Boleyn and Catherine Parr would have a great deal to say about that. And so that is it for Jane Seymour, wife number three. Next time, we'll move on to wife number four, 
Anne of Cleves, a German princess whose time on the throne, if you can even call it that, was even shorter than that of Jane, whose influence would cast a very long shadow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.